Let's open our Bibles to the book of the Revelation, chapter 2, and we're reading tonight beginning at verse 1, reading through verse number 7. By next weekend, hopefully, uh, we will have a giant chart stretched all the way across uh, here so we can kind of keep you uh, informed as to the events and the time slot of those events as revealed here in the book of the Revelation. Until then, you'll have to use the little handy chart that I passed out some time back and I hope you have still in your Bible and that might help clear things up for us a bit. Studies in the book of the Revelation. We have looked already in chapter 1 and now we come to chapter 2. Let's pray for the Lord's guidance. Father, I pray that you will direct us and our thoughts tonight. Lead us, O Lord, into the depths of understanding as thy people. And Lord, not for the sake of understanding alone, but for the great purpose of application of the truth to our lives. Lord Jesus, we love thee and thank you for thy greatness. Thank you for giving us the precious, unadulterated, pure, holy, infallible, inspired word of God. We love thy truth and we pray that you will help us to impart it rightly and divide rightly thy word tonight and we'll give thee praise in the precious name of Jesus we ask, amen. Now back in chapter 1 at verse 19, I call that to your attention very briefly for here in verse 19 is the divine outline of the entire book of Revelation. It is the outline that, that we are following is a very simple one. And yet isn't it amazing uh, the great things that God can give to us in the simplest manner of all. Uh, God does, doesn't take the Lord long to say what needs to be said. Uh, I think of his commandments that he has given. Simply ten of them in the, as we know the ten commandments. Whereas it took our government uh, to a, a, a 3,000 page uh, syllabus to describe why cabbage is so much higher in China than here. I'm glad the Lord says the truth in just a very simple way and a way whereby we can grasp and understand. And this book of the Revelation is no different than that. And I hope that you're approaching the study of this book with the thought in mind that it is understandable. Too many people have said, well, I don't, I don't read the book of Revelation. I can't understand it. God would have never given us his word had he not wanted us to understand it. And I believe that as we look at it, you're going to find that it is indeed, though a mysterious book, a book filled with signs and symbols, yet it is a book uh, easily accessible for, uh, to our understanding. Verse 19 gives that divine outline, which simply says, write the things which thou hast seen, that is, things that are past, and that relates especially to the vision that, our, that John saw of our Lord and is recorded in chapter 1. And I talked to you about that last Sunday night, how we saw uh, in the verses of, of chapter 1, verse number 1, down through the last verse, uh, we saw a, 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 a victim. John was that victim of Domitian, had been exiled to the Isle of Patmos in the Aegean Sea because of his faithfulness to the word of God and his desire and willingness to proclaim it. Uh, here is a preacher in prison. 
not because of immorality, not because of male fraud, not because of some gross crime, but because he stood true to the word of God. And certainly it's an honor, uh, as not only John felt, but as Paul felt, to suffer for the sake and the cause of Jesus Christ. We saw him as a victim, but we also saw in those verses, uh, we saw a voice. And John heard that voice as a trumpet behind him. And when he turned to see the voice that spoke, he then saw the vision of our blessed Lord. And so here we saw in these verses of John 1, verse 9 through 20, the vision of our Lord. Won't take time to deal with that. And then we saw the victory that uh, the Word of God assures us of, and especially verse 18, I'm he that liveth and was dead, and behold, I'm alive forevermore, amen, and have the keys of hell and of death. We saw that that is a note of victory. At verse 20, there's another note of encouraging victory. For the Lord here says that the seven stars are the angels of the seven churches and the seven candlesticks without sauce are the seven churches. In other words, these candle holders, the churches, were held in the hand of power, the right hand of our God. And the right hand of God always speaks of power, of authority. So that is an assurance of our victory, even in spite of all that is going to come upon this earth. Now then, uh, we come here to chapter 2, and these things, beginning at chapter 2 and all the way through chapter 3, deal with what we know as the church age. If you uh, could make reference to your little diagram, you would find that the church age, we have noted, begun as far as its uh, inauguration on the day of Pentecost. The church was in the mind of God from eternity, but I believe personally that the church experienced its birth of ministry on the day of Pentecost, and it was empowered by the Holy Spirit to perform the ministry and the mission God gave the church to perform and to accomplish. And so the age of the church is that age in which you and I are presently living. It is also referred to as the age of grace. And so for almost 2,000 years, we have been in this period known as the age of the church. So here in Revelation 2 and 3, John tells us something about the church. The Lord Jesus actually is speaking through John to the church. And by the way, this is the only record we have of the Lord Jesus speaking directly to the church. Now, there are many other things that our Lord had said, but yet here you find Jesus speaking through John specifically, pointedly to the church. Vance Havner, the great old preacher who has now gone to glory, uh, had a very excellent book entitled Repent or Else. Repent or Else. And you'll find the Lord saying that to the churches all the way through. Dr. Abner also says that the last words of Jesus to the church was not go into all the world and preach the gospel to every creature, but the last word of Jesus to the church was repent, repent, undoubtedly because we have failed to follow through with the command of the Lord and be obedient to his very commission to us. So the last word of our Lord to the church is found in these uh, verses of these uh, four of these two chapters of Revelation. 
Now, there's a fourfold view of the church or of the churches that I want you to take note of and, uh, and, and keep this in mind as we look at what the Lord says to the churches. First of all, there is a practical view in relation to the letter or the word the Lord speaks to the church. And I mean by that, there is a wealth of local allusion and color in all that the Lord says to these seven distinct churches. And so there is a very practical side of what our Lord says to the churches. Uh, these churches were present and the time of John's particular uh, message or the Lord's message to them. They were existent on the earth. They were present. And thus the Lord gives to them a very practical lesson and message that is suited for their particular locale. There is not only the practical view, but secondly, there is a perennial view that is given to us as you look at the churches. You see here, you find existent in these churches, now the same things overall are also existent in the church of this 20th century. So it is a perennial view. That is, the Lord reveals conditions always existent in the church. There's never been a time when some of these things have not existed in the church. Like Ephesus, the loss of first love. Uh, Smyrna, the suffering church. Philadelphia, the uh, church of opportunity. And so on. And so it is a perennial view also when you look at these letters to the seven churches. Thirdly, there is a prophetical view. A view relative to prophecy. And I believe that you'll find here in these seven churches that the Lord through this message relates the church history in its different phases from the time of its effective beginning ministry at Pentecost until the coming of our Lord to rapture out these who will make up the body of Christ the church. And so then here is a very, uh, a very uh, uh, prophetical view as you look at these churches. In other words, I think that you'll find that all seven of these churches distinctly represent particular periods in, those, in that history of the church and its ministry upon this earth. Undoubtedly, this first letter that we'll look at to the church of Ephesus was the period from about 33 A.D. up until uh, 100 A.D., in other words, here is uh, the condition of the apostolic church for, uh, in this prophetical utterance of our Lord. Now you'll find that therein is in all seven of these churches, follow me now, am I going too fast? Y'all still with me? Nod your head like that. Come on, nod your head. Two or three nodded one way. All right, come on. All right, here, you'll find that in all seven of these churches, there is a predominant characteristic uh, in each era of the church's history, a predominant characteristic. That is not to say that other things do not relate to the church of those periods, but there's one predominant characteristic of those churches in that period, such as the church of Ephesus that we'll look at. There is a predominant characteristic or trait in that church that, is ev that was evident in that particular time period. And then there's a fourth view as you look at these churches, and that is a personal view. A personal view. That is to say, the Lord in his message to these churches gives not only a corporate message to the church, but he gives a personal, individual message or application that we can apply, for example, to our lives. For example, 
when uh, money uh, runs low, uh, as far as I'm concerned, I need on a personal level to hear what the Lord said to the church of Smyrna. I know thy poverty, but thou art rich. I need to hear that. In other words, that's a personal message. I need also to hear on a personal level what the Lord says to the church of Ephesus. And that is, often I hear him saying, I have somewhat against you, Walter, because you have left loving me first. You have left your first love. There are times that I need that personal message of correction that the Lord can bring me back to that place of full surrender and dominant love in my life and heart to the dear Lord Jesus. Well, what is a church anyway? I think we ought to consider. What is it? Is it a building or is it people? Uh, is it uh, brick and mortar or is it those who indeed make up that body of believers? The word church comes from the word, as you know, ecclesia, and it simply means a called out and called together group of people. Now, in that same sense, Israel was an ecclesia. Not in the same sense as we are a church, but in the sense that they were a called out people. He called out his son from Egypt, called out his people out of Egypt. That's the same same thought. And so the word church comes from this word ecclesia. We are a called out, called together group of born again children of God. We have been called by his grace. We have responded to his call. We have received Jesus in our heart and we're made a part of that body of Christ. Indeed, we need to recognize, remember, that the church is an organic union with Jesus Christ. So church is not an organization, though there needs to be organization in a church. But the church is not so much an organization, it is a living organism. And Paul wrote concerning that, and he said that we are bone of his bone, and we are flesh of his flesh. We are members of the body of Christ, and every individual member makes up that body of Christ. Uh, Somewhat like the cells that make up the body, the members of the body. And Paul uses that very uh, illustration in his writings to the church of the Corinthians. Now then let's look particularly at the first of these letters and the Lord Jesus saying this through John. John in reality was the Lord's secretary. Wouldn't that have been wonderful? Uh, He was the secretary of our Lord. And the Lord is saying to him what he wants him to write and that's the thing, write these things that you have heard and seen, the things which are and the things that are going to come. All right, in verse one, the letter reads like this. Under the angel of the church of Ephesus, right? Now, certainly we believe in angels as we commonly think of angels. But the word angel here, angelion, is also a word that is translated messenger. And I believe that you'll find that John, the Lord, is directing his message to, if you pardon the language, the head honcho of the church. That is, he's writing to the preacher. He's writing to that one who is the under shepherd of that particular church. And certainly that's where the Lord begins. He must begin in the preacher's heart. And uh, I've often heard it said, and I believe it, that the church itself will rise no higher spiritually than the pastor. And all what a responsibility that lays upon the shoulder of any man of God. I think of what Robert Murray McShane said to a friend of his who asked, what is your church's greatest need? And Robert McShane said, my personal holiness. And that's a jarring truth to me. 
My, the greatest need of this church is my personal holiness. The greatest need as far as my leadership in the church is my holiness before God, my purity, my devotion to God. And so then he writes to the angel, the messenger of the church of Ephesus. By the way, the word Ephesus means desirable one, the, a desirable one. But isn't it sad when you read this letter that instead of being desirable, they become the disappointing one. The Lord has great desire for us. He desires that we love him, that we serve him, that we be faithful to him. But how often we become, as it were, a disappointment to him. All right, he continues. Write these things, saith he, that holdeth the seven stars in his right hand, who walketh in the midst of the seven golden candlesticks. Now here you see authority and you see activity. You see authority in the fact that he holds the seven stars, the churches, in his right hand. That is authority. That is power. That is omnipotence. And thank God we rest securely in, under the power and the authority of our Lord God. No wonder Jesus said when he talked about his church that he would build. And he said, and the gates of hell shall not swallow it up. They'll not prevail against it. No wonder he could say that. The church is resting in the right hand of the authority and power and might of our Lord. But notice not only authority is mentioned in this verse, but activity is seen. The one who is in the midst is walking in the midst of the seven golden candlesticks. Walking in the midst. There is activity. And I tell you, any time you get around the Lord, you're going to find activity. He's on the move. And he's working and active when you don't think he is. Sometimes you do not see evidence of his working, but I promise he's working. He's just like those beans some of you planted before the rain. Uh, you don't really see the activity going on beneath the soil, but you will see it before long. And so our Lord is walking, not only walking in the sense of activity, but he is walking in the sense of, uh, of the manager and, yes, of the judge. He is looking at his churches, and we are responsible to him. As members of the church, as individual cooperative churches, we are responsible to him. All right, watch, he goes further. I know thy works and thy labor and thy patience, how thou canst not bear them which are evil, and thou hast tried them which say they're apostles and are not, and hast found them liars, and hast borne, and hast patience, and for my name's sake has labored, and have not fainted. Nevertheless, I have somewhat against thee, because thou hast left thy first love. Remember, therefore, from whence thou art fallen, repent and do the first works, or else I will come unto thee quickly and will remove thy candlestick or candle holder out of its place, except thou repent. But this thou hast, that thou hatest the deeds of the Nicolaitans, which I also hate. He that hath an ear, let him hear what the Spirit saith unto the churches. To him that overcometh will I give to eat of the tree of life, which is in the midst of the paradise of God. Now, the church of Ephesus, by the way, is the only church that two letters were written to. I mean, by two uh, uh, different apostles. Paul wrote a letter to them. Also, John writes this letter to the church of Ephesus. Now, when Paul wrote his letter, the letter of Ephesians, to the Christians at Ephesus, the church at Ephesus was literally the crowning church of the day. 
They were active. They were prosperous. They were in love with the Lord. And there was such excitement in the church of Ephesus. I think if you had had the privilege of going to Ephesus, I think you would have sensed an electrifying atmosphere among those people of God. The eagerness that they displayed. The manifestation of love for God and love for the Lord Jesus was very evident in the church of Ephesus. You'll notice in Paul's letter to the Ephesians, I'll just mention this in passing. There are two recorded prayers in the letter of the Ephesians that Paul prays in relation to the church and for the church. The first prayer that he prayed was that they might have more light. That they might have more light. The second prayer that is recorded in Ephesians in chapter 3 at verse 17, 18, and 19. He prays there for more love. First he prays for more light, understanding, knowledge, a grasp of the truth. And now he prays that they will increase the more in love. And he said this in the verses of Ephesians 3, 17, and 19. That you being rooted and grounded in love may be able to comprehend, grasp with all saints, what is the breadth and length and depth and height, and to know the love of Christ which passeth all understanding. So when Paul wrote to the Ephesian church, the church was the crowning church of the day. But watch what happens now when John writes to them. They are the church of crises of the day. They are the crises church of the day. Notice John writes to them and it says, Thou hast left thy first love. There are others who translate that statement as, You have left loving me first. I think you get the idea of what he's saying. Your love is cool. Something has happened somewhere. And that love that once you manifest for me is very conspicuously absent in your church and in your lives personally and individually. Somebody said it like this, that the furnace, the furnace was still there but the fire had gone out. That's happening to him. I referred a moment ago. I heard once uh, tell the story of being in a particular church for a meeting. And it was in the wintertime. It got kind of cold. I kind of wish it was wintertime now. But uh, uh, he was in the church and the temperature was dropping. And he leaned over to one of the, the, the men of the church and said, check the furnace. And the man went back and directly came up and Vance was sitting on the platform and uh, he said to Dr. Hafner, he said, sir, he said, uh, the fire is out, but the blower is still going. I'm afraid that's the picture of many of our lives. I'm afraid that's the picture of many of our churches. The fire is out, but the blower is still going. We're still making a lot of racket and creating a lot of commotion, but where's the fire? That is, that passionate, that hot, that white hot love that we ought to have in our hearts for the Lord Jesus. There was a measure of warmth, undoubtedly, in the Ephesian church, a measure of warmth, but the coals no longer had that glow and burning, attractive glow to them that once they had. All there is now seems to be merely a dull, dying glow in the fire of their heart, the fire and passion of their love for the Lord Jesus. Now there are three things. Let me ask you to jot down in relation to these verses. And if you will, take them home with you and think them through. Three things, jot them down. Number one, you'll find in verse one through three, the faithful works of the church. The faithful works of the church. Verses one through three. Verse four, down through verse five A, the first part of verse five, you'll find the fatal weakness in the church. 
the fatal weakness in the church. And then at verse number 5b through verse 7, you'll find the forceful warning of our Lord to the church. So three things we have, the faithful works of the church, the fatal weakness of the church, and the forceful warning of our Lord to the church. Let's look at those three if we have time. First, the faithful works of the church. Mention three things here. Notice they were standing up to the task. Secondly, they were standing up for the truth. And number three, they were standing up in the test. They were standing up for the ta- to the task, standing for the truth, standing up in the test. Now this church undoubtedly was a very active church. I think you can gather that from what is said here in the words of our Lord. There was plenty of activity, plenty of things going on, hum, buzz and hum all around. And yet they may have been, they may have been faithful, but undoubtedly they were not fruitful. In other words, the fruit that the Lord was looking for in their lives seemed to be absent and not there. Oh yes, they were faithful in activity and going and doing and so forth, but there was something drastically missing that our Lord looked for. It reminds me of the time when Jesus came outside the city and there's the fig tree and he saw in it leaves, but there was no fruit. He saw the leaves, the evidence that ought to be speak fruit, but no fruit. And I fear often the Lord looks at us as he walks in the midst of our church. He undoubtedly sees faithfulness. Oh yes, we go to church. We give our tithes. We give our offerings. We're there when the doors are open. But ah, does the Lord find fruit in our lives that he looks for and desires so much to find. Now, he reminds them here of three facts. Three facts he reminds them of. Verse one, he reminds them of his care. He reminds them of his care. Notice he's holding the seven stars. He walks in the midst of the church. He is evidencing his care for the church. And I'll tell you something. Oh, how he cares for his church. Be careful what you say about his church. You're treading on dangerous ground when you talk to a man about his bride. I mean, you can talk about him, but don't talk about his bride. You'll You'll get his temperature up. And so the Lord has great care for the church. Not only that, but in verse number two, notice his knowledge concerning the church. His knowledge of the church. I know thy works and thy labor and thy patience and how thou canst not bear them which are evil. You have tried them which say they're apostles and are not and has found them liars. Now, he knew this about them. He knew two things. He saw, in his, he knew in this knowledge of them that these in Ephesus repudiated moral evil. They were disgusted at moral corruption. And that's what the verse says. And how thou canst not bear them which are evil. Now, that term doesn't mean the same thing that sometimes you hear people say, I just can't bear that fellow. That's what he's he's saying. They're saying we cannot hold them up in their evil. No church should ever hold up anybody in the wrong of their life. We should neither hold up one another when we're wrong. Now, I don't mean by that that we scorn, that we condemn, that we cut out of our lives, but certainly a man of truth cannot uphold that which is untrue. And so here, the Lord says, I know, I know how you have repudiated moral evil. But he says something else. I said, I know also how you, how you have repudiated ministerial evil. Notice what he said in verse, y'all following me? Now you get more out of it, you follow it. 
Look at this, if you will. And he said, and thou hast tried them which say they're apostles and are not and has found them liars. In other words, no, listen, you couldn't just be a jack leg, one gallus, fly by night kind of preacher and come to Ephesus and expect to be received with open arms. In other words, these people believed in men being sound in the faith. And if a man said, hey, I'm an apostle, oh, they didn't just take him at face value. In fact, they, they put him to the test. Notice the word, you have tried them. I mean, that's, that's kind of a judicial type word. You put them, I mean, you put them up. It's kind of like a fellow who says, the Lord's called me to the ministry. And, and there's formed in that local church uh, what is known as a presbytery. And that presbytery meets together and they question the young man as to his faith, as to his belief, his doctrine, and so forth. And that's what this church in Ephesus did. They didn't just put their stamp of approval on any man because he called himself Rev. They didn't put their stamp on anybody just because they said, I'm a preacher. And we might do well to be cautious in our own lives in that respect. There are a lot of folks who call themselves, well, the word reverend, by the way, I never have liked that word attached to my name. Some people do that. I get a call every once in a while and say, how you doing, reverend? And uh, I just kind of cringe on the inside because I know what the word means. The word reverend in Hebrew means terrible, dreadful. <laughs> so when you call, uh, call me the Reverend Walter Burl, you're saying the terrible Walter Burl, the dreadful. I hope I'm not that. But yet the word Reverend has a greater sense, depth of meaning than that in relation to our Lord God. He is terrible. He is mighty. He is awesome. And yet uh, uh, here, these didn't just, uh, I mean, they just take a fella. Now they repudiated moral evil and ministerial evil. You see, uh, the kind of things, for example, that were taking place in Corinth, they would have never been tolerated in Ephesus. I mean, you wouldn't have gotten by with just anything had you been a member of uh, the first church of Ephesus. A man who was found unscrupulous in business, a person in the membership of the church who was impure in his manner of life, immoral in their conduct, if they were guilty of habitual intoxication or drunkenness, if they're given to fits of rage, as was in Corinth, if they were unfaithful to their vows, if they were convicted of lying, if they were unfaithful in their attendance, you know what happened? They were put out of the fellowship of the church. The time in this country when that happened, I was reading the record book of an old church the other day. And that record book told about a meeting where a fella had attended a dance on Saturday night who was a leader in the church and they put him out of the church the next day. The whole story was he stood out in front of the church, however, after they voted him out with a buggy whip and threatened to whip anybody that came out of the church. Well, at least the church may have got a whipping, but I'll tell you, they stood for what was right. You see, we have so, we have so neglected the standard of purity and righteousness uh, a man can just about be anything, be a member of the average Baptist church. Uh, it doesn't make much difference anymore. And yet again, God's word would have us to be loving as well as disciplinary in the fellowship of the church. There's a high standard of discipline undoubtedly in this church in Ephesus. They were a very active church. I imagine you'd have, your head had been swimming if you'd have heard the pastor in Ephesus uh, give out the announcements for the coming week. Something going every night. 
meetings in the afternoon, preaching down on the square, down in Martyr's uh, Village. They were down there preaching, passing out tracts, visiting, and a prayer meeting here, uh, a seminar over there, a gathering together here, a prayer meeting there. I believe that church in Ephesus was a very active church. Not only that, but notice secondly, verse 4 and 5, the fatal weakness of this church. Now, on the surface, you look at that church and you say, boy, wouldn't that have been a joy to have been a member of a church like that? Boy, they were really getting things done. And you would think from your standpoint and mine that, boy, this church is really pleasing in the sight of the Lord. There's nothing wrong here whatsoever. Now, Paul wrote to the Ephesians when he wrote to them, and he reminded them of their exalted position. He reminded them of their position in Christ. He said, you are risen with Christ. You have been quickened together with Christ. You're seated in the heavenlies. You are a crowning church who loves the Lord, who seeks the truth, who tries to live by the truth. But now John writes to them in in the following statement and he says, Thou art fallen. What a terse statement that is. What a shocking message that is from the man of God. Once you, were, uh, once you were in the eyes of the Lord, crowned, and you were exalted, but now thou art fallen. Now, don't you know there's two outstanding facts here at verse number four. Notice the fact that the vitality of their passion was gone. The vitality of their passion was gone. In other words, this one great debt canceled all their credit in the eyes of God. Their activity was meaningless. Their ceaseless moving about, their labor, all of these things, their standing against evil. Oh, certainly we ought to do that. But the Lord looks for one thing above all else, and that is love and devotion and surrender and absolute love for Him in our hearts. You see, it's possible to be outwardly serving the Lord for a variety of reasons, not because we love Him. Some people serve him for the praise of men. And that's evident. If we're not praised for what we do, we're insulted. Again, there are, there are motives of prestige or position. Many serve him for reputation's sake, just a good reputation. Others serve him because they feel that's the thing to do. I go to church, not because I love the Lord, just the thing to do, you know. That's what you do on Sunday around here. You go to church. But I want to tell you what, that's not pleasing in God's sight at all. Our attendance at God's house ought to be first and foremost because we love him. Not because the preacher expects you to be here. Not because I'm expected to be here because I'm the pastor of the church. But simply because out of love for it, you would notice a drastic difference in this church as in every church if our motivation was altogether because we love the Lord Jesus. And you'd find that our conduct as well would be changed if there were real, genuine love in our heart for Christ. We do not the things that displease Him because of our love and our devotion to Him. So it boils down to this. When we do not love Christ as we ought, we find ourselves often guilty of the grossest kinds of sin and wickedness and rebellion against God. And then some simply serve Him out of a sense of duty. Well, Nobody else is going to do it, so I'll do it. I think, for example, when the men around here volunteered to cut the grass, I think men, you ought to cut the grass and say, Lord Jesus, I love you. Thank God I have the opportunity of serving you this way. 
I think here when people work in this church in any way, sing in the choir, teach in a Sunday school class, whatever we do, we ought to just have on our lips the voice and sound of praise. Lord Jesus, thank you because I love you. I have an opportunity to express it in this way. If it's nothing but picking up paper out on the lawn, if it's nothing but caring for the building, we ought to say, Lord Jesus, I do it because I love you. I want to invite others to church because I love you. I want to pray because I love you. I want to read your word because I love you. Love for Christ is the great single need in every one of our hearts. If our service is not born of devotion to Christ, it's worthless. It's not meaningful in his sight at all. Not only do you see that they lost the vitality of their passion, that was gone. But the second thing we'll show here is that the validity of their profession was gone. That is the convincing part of their, of their profession. Uh, the power of it. Uh, the solidness, the soundness of it. Why? Because there was an absence of love. There was no love there. Oh, they made loud profession. You see, it's like this. It's like you say to a person, I love you and that's the reason I'm doing what I'm doing. Listen, if real love is there, they know it and you do too. And yet that very, that very validity of their profession seems to be gone. He said, thou art fallen. Verse 5, the first part of the verse. Thou art fallen. Back in the book of 1 Kings chapter 14, verse 25 down to 27, there is the record of King Rehoboam of Israel. And when he came to the throne in Israel, he acted like the fool that he was. And so when he gets on the throne of Israel, because of Israel and Judah's rebellion and distance from God, their forsaking of God, the Lord permitted the Egyptians to come in to, to the land and they literally took away the shields of gold that Solomon had made for the guards or the temple guards. They took those away. They were golden shields. And when they did, Rehoboam, being the man that he was, took it in his own stride. You know what he did? He made shields out of brass. Oh, sure, they looked good, and they had sparkle in the sun when the sun was shining down, and people would see them. They looked good. But all oh, he had substituted brass for gold. And often we substitute the brass of serving and doing for the devotion of gold, the golden devotion of love in our heart for the Lord Jesus. You ever notice this? When people really love the Lord Jesus, you don't have to beg them, prime them. You don't have to uh, promise. But when there is an opportunity to serve, listen, because we love him, there is an eagerness in our heart. We want to do it because we love him. And folks, listen, that's what God looks for in Return Baptist Church. He looks for the love and devotion of my heart, of your heart, that we serve him, we're faithful to him because we love him and that's what he delights in most of all. So this very thing happened in Ephesus. They had traded off the real thing for a cheap substitute and yet though others may have not seen the difference, the Lord knew the difference. J.B. Phillips in his translation of 1 Corinthians 13 and I don't often read from another translation but I think Mr. Phillips says in our way of talk what this thing of 1 Corinthians 13 and love is all about. I want you to listen carefully. He said, the love of which I speak is slow to lose patience. It looks for a way to be constructive, not destructive. 
It is not possessive. It is neither anxious to impress, nor does it cherish inflated ideas of its own importance. Love has good manners and does not pursue selfish advantage. It is not touchy. It does not keep account of evil or gloat over the wickedness of other people. On the contrary, it is glad with all good men when truth prevails. Love knows not limit to its knows no limit to its endurance, no end to its trust, no fading of its hope. It can outlast anything. In this life, we have three great lasting qualities: faith, hope, and love. But the greatest of them is love. What a description of the love the Lord looked for in this place. And the word love that he mentions here is that word that relates to the God kind of love, agape, that self-sacrificing love. In other words, human love, sensual love simply says, I'll love you as long as you love me. But boy, when you quit loving me, you have had it. I want you to know that. That's not the kind of love the Bible calls for. It's the kind of love that God is who sheds abroad his love in our heart. And so here is seen the tragedy of their fatal weakness. And then finally, and I close with this, verse 5, B through verse number 7, he gives a forceful warning to the church. He says now that they need to repent. They need to turn back indeed to their first love. Three things we can say that he says here in this verse. And let's read again. Remember therefore from whence art fallen and repent. And do the first works. Three things he says. Remember. Secondly, repent. And thirdly, he says, repeat. That's the three R's. Not reading, writing, arithmetic. But remember, he said. Remember where you once were. And I want you, if you will, let's go back to those days when you first trusted Christ. There's an excitement there. There's a thrill about it. There was a delight and a hunger, a yearning to get to his word. You wanted to read his love letter. You want to know what he said. There's a thrill about being around God's people whom you knew loved him too. And so the Lord is saying, remember those days. Remember when you could hardly keep quiet about telling others of Jesus Christ. I remember that in my life. The night I got saved, listen, I want to tell everybody. I met everybody in the trailer park. I could. I told them about knowing Jesus, getting to know Christ as my Savior. And I even turned around and thought of Bush there beside a fellow's house and a man and started to tell the Bush, I love Jesus. And I want you to know him too. The whole thing, there was an excitement about it. A devotion, a love for Jesus Christ. And Paul is saying, remember that. Remember when the doors of God's house was open. You weren't hunting for excuses not to be there. It wasn't a matter of jotting in, grown toenail and a backache. Oh, it wasn't that at all. And I realize there are times, I don't know if an ingrown toenail gets that bad or not, but I know there are times when it can't be there because of physical illness. But oh, listen, I'm talking about because we love him in spite of everything, we wanted to be in his house, be faithful and pleasing to him in our life. You know what I'm talking about. And so he said, remember. And then he said, not to remember, but when you do, you need to repent. You need to do an about face. You need to have a change of mind about yourself and about the Lord, about your life. Do an about face. And then he said, repeat. Do the first works. Get back in where you got off. Now I'm going to tell you where we get off. Stop loving Jesus. We let other things come in front of us. Recreation, sports, TV, ball games, uh, parties, uh, visits to aunt and uncle Jim that we hadn't seen in 30 years. 
The whole story is repeat. He said, just turn it around, turn it around and repeat that of your devotion and your love to the dear Lord Jesus. Let me say these things. I am through. Love is to be paramount in our life. That's what John is saying. Repent and do the first works or else I will come unto thee quickly and remove the candlestick out of his place except thy, thou repent. In other words, the rule is no love, no light. No love, no testimony. No love, no witness. Love, in other words, must be paramount. In God's sight, nothing else will do. Nothing else will do. If there is no real love for the Lord Jesus, the reason for the church's existence has vanished. If there is no love in this church for the Lord Jesus, we've lost our reason for being here. Our reason to be here is to fall more deeply in love with him, to honor him more, to exalt him more in our very lives. A church without that love gives the wrong impression of Christianity to the world outside and it's best for it to be terminated. I've seen many a church and all you can find inside the church is hostility, warring factions in the church, fussing, griping, growling, all kind of things like that. Listen, that's an ill testimony, a devilish testimony that we give the world. And many a man out here in the world, oh listen, many a man out of the world has been turned off of coming to Jesus Christ because he looks at many a church and all are doing squabbling and squalling and fighting and fuming among themselves. God have mercy. I'd rather God had burned this building down than to let that happen at Return Baptist Church. I'd rather we wouldn't even be on this, on this earth. And thank God by his grace and if we'll stay right with God and right with each other, that, can, that does never have to happen in the church. And I'm glad that it hasn't. But oh, how we need to pray, how we need to honor God and keep the fire of love burning in our heart. Look at verse six. Love not only must be paramount, it must be positive. Our love for him must be positive. While reproving gives, uh, uh, while the Lord is reproving and, and, and correcting the church, yet he gives a further con- commendation to him. And he says this, I know how you, you don't like the word deeds of the Nicolaitans. And really, there is no history or record of any group known as the Nicolaitans. We have no record of them. And now there's a group who advanced and propagated false doctrine and erroneous things. And yet he's saying, I know you didn't love them. You, you, you hated their works. Uh, their love then in Ephesus, such as it was, was, a, uh, was manifest in that hatred they had of evil. And we ought to hate evil. We ought to hate wrong. We ought to hate sin. Error indeed must be hated, but something is wrong when the Lord has to endorse the negative because he cannot find the positive side of our love. And yet he gives kind of a commendation here to them. It seems like it's more of an afterthought. Well, I commend you for that. But what I'm looking for is that positive element of love in your heart for me and for the truth. And then finally at verse 7, love must be personal. And that's what he's saying at verse 7. He that hath an ear, let him hear what the Spirit saith unto the church. As a body, the church had fallen, and now the Lord appeals to the individual. The church as a whole may not love the Lord Jesus, but he's saying to the individual, if you're here, hear me. I have an ear to hear. Let, let him hear. Every individual, let him hear. Love then is a personal matter. It cannot be a corporate matter. We love individually. We're saved one by one. We're restored one by one. And that love must be a personal, individual kind of love in our own hearts. I think the Lord is calling us back to simply that daily quiet time with Him. For when you get away from that, 
You begin to lose that fervency of love in your heart for Christ. Communication is necessary if love is to grow. And that's what our daily time with God ought to be. A time when we lay before Him, bow before Him. We praise Him for His goodness. We meditate upon His Word. We offer to Him the wonderful truths of Scripture that He's given us. We sing our songs of praise to God. We offer our thanksgiving. We give Him our petitions. And we wind up praising Him. All those moments that you spend with God add fuel to the fire of love. Somebody said absence makes the heart grow fonder. I kind of question that. I think it is the daily communion that brings the fondness of the heart. Oftentimes in absence, one is forgotten. But in that closeness and that quietness before God, as he reveals himself to us, that great love of heart begins to burn and flame within our hearts. I ask you this. Do you sense deep in your heart a lack of love for the Lord Jesus? Do you find somehow inside you're crying out as I do in my heart now, Lord, help me to love you. I do love you, Lord Jesus. But oh, how I really, really, really want to love you with all of my being. I told you the story of the beginning of the great revival in the, in the country of Wales and how it begun on that evening when a group of young people had gathered together for a Christian Endeavor meeting. And one young girl, very timid, bashful, very scared, nervous, stood up and could hardly speak because of her fright. With broken heart, she said, Oh, I do love the Lord Jesus with all of my heart. Oh, that that love would be in our hearts and spill over in the lives of loved ones, friends. Love for the Lord Jesus. Put him first in your life. Love him with all your heart. Remember where you're from which you're fallen. Repent. Ask God to forgive you. And repeat the first works. Let's pray together. My Jesus, I love thee. I know thou art mine. For thee all the folly of sin I resign. My gracious Redeemer, my Savior art thou. If ever I love thee. I love her to your heart. Have you placed things between him and your life? Are there places you love more than him, people you love more? Jesus said that you ought to love him more than friends, family, even husband or wife, friend or sweetheart. He ought to be preeminent in your life. That's the place he deserves. I wonder down deep in your heart, would you like to just say, Oh, Lord. I haven't loved you like I ought. I've claimed to love you, but love in its reality is not evident in my heart. We claim to love him, and yet we do not the things that he asks us. He said, if you love me, keep my commandments. Do what I ask you. Show your love to him in the life you live. Let's stand to our feet, please. Our heads are bowed. I'd like for us to close tonight. Maybe deep in your heart. You'd just like to leave your seat and walk down to the altar and let's bow here for a moment of closing prayer. You just want to say in your heart, Oh Lord, I haven't really loved you at first. There have been other loves that have taken your place. And the Lord said, That's what I have against you. You've, you've left loving me first. Oh yeah, there's a little warm ember, but not a glowing flame. 
and ask him to kindle that love in your heart for him and to remove those things that's keeping you from loving him as you ought. Carl sing for us one stanza of I, my Jesus, I love thee. And as he sings, would you join me here at this altar and let's just ask the Lord to speak to our hearts and help us to love him as we all come while we sing together.